Well, good evening and welcome to Uni Church this Good Friday. Happy Easter to you all. Uh, I've got a bit of setup to do up here, but as I'm going, we can just, you know, banter a bit back and forth. Um, have you been enjoying your first day of the long weekend? How's it been going? Oh, was that me? What have I done to myself? Oh, up there. Okay, there we go. Can you all see that one? Are we good? All right. Um, yeah, who's enjoyed the first day of public holidays? No one? Yeah, good, good. Looking forward to another sleep in tomorrow. Can we see that one? Great, great. Um, wasn't it wonderful to hear Angel's story there? I, I'm heading back to visit my mum for Mother's Day in a few weeks' time, and yeah, so thankful for the sacrifices that parents make. Um, not sure if the maths was right, though, there. Angel, I was trying to calculate that seemed a little bit off. Uh, we, can, we can talk some maths a bit later. All right. There we go. Well, there's lots to be excited about at Easter. Uh, I haven't had a hot cross bun yet, but I have had an Easter egg. There's food to be excited about. There's days off to be excited about. I hope that tonight you'll come away from church most excited about what Jesus has done. We've had a foretaste of it already in what Angel has said. We've heard it in the Word of God there in Romans, uh, which is a wonderful and dense Word of God. So I get the privilege of trying to unpack that for us this evening and help us understand and feel the weight of what God has to say there. Uh, I wonder if last year you saw what was dubbed the, the best miniseries or TV movie of 2016. I'm talking about American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson. Uh, did anyone watch that series last year? I haven't actually watched myself. I don't know if it's any good. Who watched it? One person. Good on you, Daniel. Good to have you amongst us. Who is familiar with O.J. Simpson and the story of his trial? Does that get a few more hands? Not too many, though. Okay. We are talking 1994-95, so before many of you were born. Uh, O.J. Simpson was a famous American football player, and he was an actor as well. In 1994, he was arrested on two counts of murder. And he was tried for the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown, and her friend, Ron Goldman. Uh, Because of his status, the the trial got huge public media attention. It was the trial of the century, and it lasted for 11 months. It was a long trial. There were all sorts of racial considerations coming into it. Uh, And at the end of the 11-month trial, the jury came out and handed down the verdict, not guilty. I've got a couple of photos from that verdict being passed down on that day. I think the first one's already up there. Uh, This is Ron Goldman's family. Uh, With her head in her hands is Ron Goldman's sister. So this was one of the murder victims. And uh, his father there and his stepmother, they they just look in shock, don't they? Obviously, they were pretty convinced that O.J. Simpson was the murderer. They were pretty convinced that he was guilty. And so to hear that verdict passed down, to hear those two words not guilty, sent them into shock. It was devastating. To hear someone let off the hook when we think that they're guilty, no one likes that. On the other hand, in the second photo, this is OJ Simpson's family. His mother is looking up to the sky there, I suspect thanking God that her son has been let off. His daughter there in the middle, his sister on the right of the photo, So thankful, they can't contain their joy. See, when judgment looms, 
And be aware that the, the punishment that would have come on OJ had he been found guilty for this crime, the punishment was bordering between life in prison or perhaps even the death penalty. When that judgment is a possibility, when that is looming, to hear the verdict, not guilty, that's relief. That's joy. And depending what side you're on, depending on your opinion of the accused person, your response to their acquittal, your response to that verdict of not guilty will either be desperate grief or profound relief. Not guilty. Now I want you to imagine that tonight you come before God and and He were to look at your life on the whole. Everything that you've said laid out before Him, everything that you've ever done laid out before Him, even all those secret things that you've thought and said and done that no one else knows about. You come before God and he sees them all. What would God's verdict be of you? What would be God's assessment of your life? Guilty or not guilty? The first truth that we have to hear tonight, a truth that shapes all reality, is that God has created humanity and he cares enough about us that he will one day judge. He cares how we treat one another. He cares how we treat him and he will hold us to account because he values us as his creation. It's a truth that's everywhere throughout the Bible. From Genesis 18 where Abraham pleads with God as the judge of all the earth who will surely do what is right. Through 1 Samuel chapter 2 where Hannah prays to the God who will judge all the ends of the earth. We get to Psalm 96 where all of creation is rejoicing Because God is coming. He's coming as the judge who will judge the world with justice and righteousness. Or we get to Matthew, where we find Jesus speaking of the day when God will judge and all the nations, all the people will be separated as sheep or goats before him. Or here in Romans, this dense letter that Austin read a part of for us, just earlier than that section that was read, in Romans 2 verse 16, Paul speaks of the day when God judges what people have kept secret, according to my gospel, through Christ Jesus. And Paul says of humanity on this day of judgment, just prior in verse 15, their competing thoughts will either accuse them or excuse them. Perhaps that describes you tonight, as you ponder what it would be like to see God face to face, as you ponder what that judgment day will be, perhaps your thoughts are competing with one another. You want to excuse yourself. You want to be found not guilty, but you know, really, that you are guilty. You know that you haven't lived up to your own standards, let alone God's. It's okay, you're not alone. I'm there with you in that feeling. Have a look at verse 19 of Romans 3. This is the place of all humanity before God. Romans 3 verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says speaks to those who are subject to the law so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. Every mouth silenced before God as the judge, the whole world subject to God's judgment. Guilt is a universal experience. 
Everybody at some time or another has that bad feeling of not doing what they ought to do or of doing what they ought not to do. No one has ever managed to erase that sense of ought that God has written into the human heart. We may have ended up with lots of different ideas of what that ought is, but none of us have done away with that sense that there is something we are meant to be doing. None of us has done away with that feeling of guilt that we haven't done all that we ought to have done. We haven't felt all that we ought to have felt. We end up feeling bad with a conscience weighing us down, with guilt somewhere there inside of us. There's lots of different ways of trying to deal with that guilt. Over here, we might have the intellectual way of dealing with guilt. Uh, Guilt looks big to start with, but we go, no, no, I can reason my way out of this. Perhaps my expectations of myself are just a bit too high. You know, we can shrink down this guilt a little bit. Yeah, I'll stuff up, but I'm only human. I can't expect too much of myself. We lower our expectations. Or another thing we might do is redefine our morality and say that some of the things that we think are moral, they're just outdated. They're relics of an unenlightened past. We've become enlightened now. We we know better what's right and wrong. And so we we take this bit of guilt and we go, that's not really something I need to feel guilty for. We start calling things virtue that 10 years ago used to be vice. Things like greed, things like slavery and oppression that society is now largely built on over here. Things like sexual activity outside of marriage. It's now virtue. It's now part of being human. There's some intellectual ways that we deal with our guilt. We placate ourselves, placate our consciences with comforting words. Sometimes that doesn't work and so for other people we have to turn to physical ways of dealing with our guilt just too much for us so we turn to the beer the beer doesn't last too long so we get onto the wine we get onto the whiskey and try to drown away that feeling of guilt and there might be other presenting problems that we might account the alcohol use for you know stress grief loneliness but i think alongside or underneath all of that there is that sense of guilt that i should be able to deal with the stress i should be able to deal with the grief with the loneliness So we drown away that guilt. It might not be alcohol or drugs. It might be as simple as binging on chocolate, letting the chocolate work away your guilt. Or perhaps you turn to sport. Watch as much rugby as you can. You you play games morning, noon and night. You keep the TV on, never letting those unsettling sounds of silence come to you. That constant barrage of sound and sight just to keep away the silence. Because you know that in the silence, the voice of guilt will come again. We've got intellectual ways of dealing with guilt. We've got physical ways of dealing with guilt. But the oldest and most respected way of dealing with guilt would have to be the religious way. It's the most deceptive tactic because it comes closest to the truth. See, what religion recognises that the intellectual and physical strategies ignore is that the ultimate cause for our feeling of guilt is that there is this righteous God whose will for his creatures is being ignored or defied. Religion recognises that every pang of conscience that we feel is accompanied by that silent and often unexpressed voice that says, I've gone against God. 
And so religion has developed all sorts of religious rituals or lists of good works that I can do to try to placate God, to try to block out God's view of my guilt. So we might start with a foundation of no, uh, baptism. There's my baptism. I'm, good, I'm a good Presbyterian, I'm a good Anglican, I'm a good Catholic. I was baptized as a child. I'm in. That might not be quite high enough, so we, we might get confirmed later on as a teenager. Uh, we might uh, take our first communion or make sure that we come to church every time Lord's Supper is on because, you know, that's, that's going to work out lots for us. Um, we might give, give so much to charity, give, give to the church, make sure that my money's flowing out. We might even play in the band at church, you know. You hear those people that will look back on the time when uh, I was in the choir for church. I've done my time. I've served God. We might even have been married, or if we're going to get married, we're like, I'll get married in a church. I'll get married by a minister. That's got to count for something. Here's one I almost forgot. We say our prayers. That's, that's got to build up a little bit there. God's not going to look through that. And finally, the most common one that often people will add on to this list, look, I've, I've been to church. I go every Easter, every Christmas, I'm there. I go when the weddings are on and the funerals. I've been to church. And we, we construct this edifice of religion in the hope that it will block out our guilt from God's view or perhaps bribe him to overlook our guilt and to just pass over it. Every religion, not just the Christian religion, every religion has this at its heart, a set of rituals, a list of good works that if I just keep them, then my guilt will be done away with. Intellectual, physical, religious, lots of ways of dealing with our guilt. I wonder which one you favour. I trust there are some here tonight from each of these groups. And my prayer is that for all of us, we'll leave here today liberated and set free from our feelings of guilt, set free from our frantic attempts to lessen or drown out or cover up our guilt. And my prayer is that that will happen as we hear what God has done to deal with our guilt. You ready to hear it? Here's God's solution for our guilt. God freely acquits us as a gift. God acquits us. He declares us to be not guilty as a free gift. Look with me at Romans 3, verse 23 to 24. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. They're justified freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Now, verse 23 there, it reaffirms what we've already seen. We're all guilty before God. None of us has lived a life that matches the glory of God. None of us has given God the glory that he deserves. We're all sinners. But, verse 24, guilty sinners like you and me are justified freely by God's grace. Now, to be justified, it's not a word that we used too much in today's world, simply means to be acquitted, to be found not guilty, to be proved to be a just person. If you're in a courtroom and someone is found to be guilty, well, at that point, they can't be justified. You might pardon them, 
You might show mercy to them, but you cannot acquit a guilty person. They're the opposite there. If you're pardoned or forgiven, you may not face the penalty that you deserve, but you're still just as guilty, just as much a real criminal when you were pardoned as you were before. In contrast to that, to be justified is to be just as if you'd never done anything wrong, to actually bear no guilt, but in everything to be called not guilty. So notice what God's saying here in Romans. He's not saying that we're actually innocent. You know, verse 23 is clear. We come to him as sinners. We come to him as guilty. But God does something amazing. He acquits the guilty. God justifies, God declares innocent those whom he knows to be ungodly, unrighteous. People like you and me. He gives this acquittal to us as a gift. See that there in verse 24? We are justified freely by God's grace. Here's another definition for you. We've had justified his grace. Grace is just an old school word for favour. Something that you do just because. Uh, I like to buy flowers for candy, my girlfriend, and often when you're in the checkout, it's like, what are you buying the flowers for? And there's the option, just because. No reason, no cause, just because I love her, I want to show that to her. That's what grace is. Something done just because, with no thought of repayment. So in saying this in verse 24, in telling us that we're justified freely by grace, God's wanting to really drive home to us this evening that this religious option will not and cannot deal with our guilt before him. So cast your eyes back up to verse 20. No one will be justified in God's sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. Now, at this point, we've got to say that the law is not just the law of the land here in New Zealand. Paul's referring to the specific law that God had revealed to Israel when he brought them out from Egypt. That law formed the basis of the Jewish religion, kind of defined what life should look like for them morning, noon and night, day in, day out, throughout the year. The law that God gave to Israel defined for them what life looked like when it pleased God. Now, the problem was no one was able to keep that law entirely. Instead, what happened, as Paul says there in verse 20, knowledge of sin came through the law. As Israelite after Israelite failed to keep the law, they came to know that they were sinful, guilty before God. Indeed, that was one of the purposes of the law. God gave the law to reveal human sinfulness. In case you think that because these works of the law that Paul's talking about here are just the Jewish ones, and perhaps we can do some other religious works that will deal with our guilt, well, no, that would be to miss the point that Paul's making here. Of all the religious options out there, the law that God gave to Israel, that was the one sanctioned by him. If anything, if any set of religious rules, if any ritual could satisfy God and deal with our guilt, it was going to be the works of the Jewish law. If they can't do it, no other religious option will do it either. No, instead, God justifies us freely by his grace. And grace and works, they are opposed to each other. At the moment that works enter the picture, grace is no longer there. It's kind of like Angel was talking about in that sense of wanting to pay her mum back. 
And in a sense that her mum did not want that. That's, that's when grace is being threatened. And her mum wanted it to be grace, a gift. Have a look at Romans 4, verse 4. Now, to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. So if religion, with its rituals and works, was to take away our guilt, then it would become something that we've earned from God. Our acquittal would actually be owed to us, like wages in a workplace. But instead, that's not God's way. God acquits us freely as a gift. And you notice in verse 5, the starkness of the description of what God does, it's, it's a wonderful verse once you grasp hold of it for yourself. God declares the ungodly to be righteous. It's not like we have to even dress ourselves up a little bit before we come to God, wash ourselves of some of our guilt and ungodliness, and, and then maybe we can approach him. God declares the ungodly to be righteous. Again, God is telling us that he acquits those who are guilty. This is phenomenal. This is something that really should blow our mind. And I'll raise a question that will come up to in a second about the justice of God. But before we get there, I want to point out that when God justifies the ungodly, this is not some falsehood. God's not pretending at this point. You know, it's not like God looks at us in our sin, looks at us in our guilt and says, nah, you're not guilty. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We'll just, we'll pretend, we'll look over it. There's no pretending happening here. When God declares you to be innocent, when God passes down that verdict, not guilty, his word brings that reality into being. Before he says that, before he justifies you, you are guilty. But the moment that God says not guilty, you are no longer guilty. Just like God said, let there be light. Light came into existence. So when God says justified, they become not guilty. That's a phenomenal gift. Actual innocence. A complete lack of guilt before God. It's better than any amount of Easter eggs you're going to get on Sunday. Wouldn't you love to walk away from here tonight with that verdict hanging over your head? Not guilty. All your guilt washed away. That's what God is offering. But here's the question that it raises, and I brought this up just before. How can God do this? Like, that sounds unjust. It sounds wrong. To say to a guilty person, not guilty, like we saw back at the start, if that's the case, that that brings tears to our eyes. If someone in a courtroom does that, we call that corruption, don't we? We call that bribery and assume that something must be going on behind the scenes. To call someone who is guilty not guilty would be a lie and a falsehood and unjust. Is God like that? No, God's plan is wonderfully just. He is a righteous and just God, even as he acquits us. Have a look at verse 24. God justifies us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means purchase or payment. It's as if the punishment for our crimes, the the penalty for our sin, is considered to be a debt, something that we need to pay off. And we still use that language today, don't we, when it comes to crime? We say that someone needs to pay for what they've done. 
That's what the Bible's doing here, using that kind of financial language to speak of our guilt. We're imprisoned, we're enslaved under the constraints of justice until we can pay the price. When it comes to our guilt before God, we need to pay, but God justifies us, how? By paying the debt for us in Christ Jesus. So have a listen to how Paul describes this in another one of his letters. Over in Colossians 2 verse 14, Paul says this, God erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us. He's taken it out of the way by nailing it to the cross. The payment price that's picked up there in Colossians, it's death. That's what we owe. And God has paid the punishment for our sin. He's paid it in the death of Jesus, nailing it to the cross. That's what Good Friday is all about. Jesus' death, it wasn't an accident. It's no tragic mistake. If you've been with us through Luke in the past term, you've seen that Jesus actually willingly headed towards his death. He knew it was coming and he he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Because on this day, when Jesus died, God the Son, God in the flesh, died the death that you and I deserve. That's where all our guilt can go. All of it can go on Jesus. He can take it. Your guilt. Your guilt. My guilt. Your guilt. Jesus can take it all. Jesus invites each and every one of us to leave our guilt with him, that he might take it to his death. Every cent is paid. It's not some part payment that we have to supplement with our religious duties and good works. Jesus didn't just put the deposit on our justification and then give us the rest of our lives to pay it off. Every skerrick, every spot or blemish of guilt, all of it is paid for by the precious blood of this one who was both God and man. So how does this help us with the justice question? When God justifies us, when God declares us to be not guilty, it's not by passing over the penalty. It's not by just ignoring the sin. That would make God unjust. And we do worry that God passes over sin. We may not phrase the question in that way, but when people ask, if God's there, why is there so much suffering in the world? At least part of the question there is, why is God not judging and punishing all the people that are causing the pain? We worry that God might let people off. But God wants it to be known that he is just, thoroughly and completely just. Have a look at verse 25. God presented Jesus as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. See, at least one thing that God has in mind in the death of Jesus is to display or demonstrate his righteousness. He wants his justice to be seen Because that very question of, isn't he passing over sins? Well, yes, he has been passing over sin. There's been years and centuries of human history where God has not punished humanity as we deserve. If God were to give us what we deserve for our sin, remember what we saw in Colossians, if God was to treat us as our sins deserve, all of us would be dead in an instant. That's what we deserve. The payment price for our sin is death. So God's been passing over sin for ages now. But in the death of Jesus, we can finally see his justice because no longer is he passing over sin. Jesus is taking the full punishment. 
Jesus is the one, God in the flesh, whose blood is so precious. He is able to take the full punishment for all of our sin together. Now notice verse 25 uses this language of propitiation. Some other translations might have sacrifice of atonement. Uh, If nothing else from tonight, you are getting a good English lesson. We've had redemption, justify and grace so far. Now propitiation. Before I get to defining that, I want to recommend a book to you that will go through all of these definitions and more. We've got three of them on the bookstall tonight. If you're a university student, you should read this before you graduate from uni, otherwise you don't really graduate. Uh, some people think that, you know, Christians, it's bad for us to have lingo that we use and there is an appropriateness to try to explain things in simple language uh, for people as they are first learning about Christianity. But you're at university, you know, you're learning lingo like Fourier transforms and normal matrices and Laplace transforms. Like, who knows what those things are? You're not trying to explain them simply. Uh, So it's good for Christians to think just as deeply about their faith as they do about their physics. So this is a book that, it's a bit thick, it's quite dense, 20 bucks, worth getting, worth reading. It'll help you to unpack lots that we're seeing about the cross of Christ tonight. I want to see all those three sold off the bookstall before I go home. Deal? (laughs) Propitiation, that's where we're up to. What is this language in verse 25? How does it help us understand God's justice? Propitiation conveys the idea that Jesus' death was a substitute for us. He died in our place. And he died to turn God's anger away from us. We are now able to be one with God again. We're we're justified. We're not guilty. See, something happened in the death of Jesus that is impossible in a human courtroom. You come back to the courtroom with me and there's a prisoner. He's been tried. He's been found guilty. He's been condemned to death. He is guilty. He can't be justified. But suppose some second party comes into that courtroom and that second party can take all that man's guilt upon himself. He could change places with that man and by some mysterious process, process that's impossible for us just as humans, but somehow this second person coming into the courtroom could become the criminal could become the guilty man and take that man's character upon himself. Imagine that that second party, the innocent one, could put the criminal in his place, making the criminal to be truly innocent. We can't do it in our courts. The best we can do, if if I had a friend who was guilty of some crime and perhaps uh, he was found worthy of a year in prison, you know, I could try to go to the judge and say to the judge, Look, have mercy on my friend. I'll take the year in prison instead. And perhaps the judge might comply. And I could go to prison for a year instead of my friend. But at that point, we've just traded punishment. I haven't actually taken away his guilt. He's still a criminal. But what humanity cannot do, God has done. I stand before you tonight as a guilty sinner. You don't know my rap sheet. You don't know the guilt that I've earned in my 30 years of life so far, but I've got a good deal of guilt there. So I use myself as the example that represents all of us. I'm condemned to die. But then Jesus steps forward and changes places with me. He actually, truly takes my guilt upon himself and gives me his complete innocence. His lack of guilt becomes mine. It's a real trade that happens. All that is mine becomes Christ's. 
All that is his becomes mine. All of my guilt actually goes to him and he takes it to the cross. All of his righteousness actually comes to me. I can go on in life free of the burden of guilt, liberated from my frantic pursuits of religion. I can be looked upon by God the Father with as much affection and love as he's always looked upon the Son in all eternity past. That's the idea in verse 21 to 22. But now, apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. That is God's righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. God's righteousness, his justice, his innocence, his perfection can come to me, can come to you in place of your guilt. Do you see how we're acquitted by the righteous and just God? God is both just and the one who justifies the ungodly. Because sin is fully paid for and we become truly innocent. What a gift. So how can it be yours? How can you walk away from church tonight free of guilt? Well, God has one word for you. Trust. Trust. You see it up there in verse 22, don't you? It's there twice, in fact. God's righteousness comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. Faith and belief, they're the same word, and both convey this idea of trust. It's not talking about needing to have some blind faith that God exists or some blind faith that Jesus was a historical person who lived and died and rose again. Those are things of historical certainty. We can look into those things just as we look into any historical inquiry. Where trust comes in is at the point of understanding the meaning of that history. I only have God's word to go on that Jesus' death 2,000 years ago actually means that I'm justified. I have to trust his word. I have to trust God. And the theme of trust, it's repeated so much in this short passage in Romans. It's twice there in verse 22. If you've got your Bible open there, you can scan your eyes down and you might even be able to underline them as you go. Repetition is a key way of us understanding the emphasis of a passage. It's there in verse 25, the word faith again. Verse 26, verse 27, verse 28, verse 30, verse 31, again down in 4 verse 3. Again, down in 4 verse 5, it's something like 10 times within these 10 or so verses. Do you hear what God is saying? Give up your other ways of dealing with your guilt. They're not effective. Trust me. God really wants to hammer home this point to us because we struggle so much to accept it. We pay money for justification. We'd travel to Spain and walk a pilgrimage in order to earn some favour with God. We'd participate in other religious rituals. We'd put on ourselves expectations of good works in the hope of justification. But when it's free, 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 we turn away. It's like we're offended that we have nothing to offer. It's like our pride struggles to accept that we have to come empty-handed. But we actually insult God 
by trying to bring our counterfeit coin to pay for his treasure. Perhaps you've been trying to deal with your guilt intellectually. The word for you tonight is don't scorn the death of Jesus. Trust him. Don't scorn the death of Jesus and say to Jesus, I don't, I don't need your death for me. What are you talking about? I'm, I'm not guilty. I can do this on my own. No, don't scorn the death of Jesus, but take your guilt, take it all to him and trust him with it. He wants to take it all. Don't scorn Jesus, but trust him. Perhaps this has been you over here, though, with the the physical way of dealing with your guilt. I don't know what you've done. Perhaps you've done something that has made you feel so guilty and you're like, I just can't come to Jesus. It's too much. No, the word for you tonight is don't drown, but trust Jesus. Whatever you've done, whatever you've done in life that you're feeling so guilty for, whatever you're trying to hide away from, don't drown it away but take it to Jesus. Get rid of all these things that you're trying to use to overwhelm your guilt and trust it to Jesus. He can take it. Or thirdly, perhaps the religious option has been your way. You've been stacking up all these things, hoping that God would overlook your guilt. The word for you tonight is, don't try, but trust. Don't try to bribe God. Don't try to block his view of your guilt. It's not going to work. He knows your guilt. He knows your secrets. And he is just. If you want to try to take your guilt before God yourself, you will perish. Your baptism counts for nothing. Your charity counts for nothing. Your respectable virtues count for nothing. This tower falls over. Don't try, but trust. Take all your guilt to Jesus. Lay it all on him and let him bear it. I don't know which one of those describes you tonight. Whether you're trying to scorn Jesus and lessen away the guilt, drown it away, work it away. Don't do any of those things, but trust Jesus. He can take your guilt And what do you get in reply? As he takes your guilt to the cross, you get his status as not guilty, completely, utterly innocent before God. That's amazing. Trust God. And because of the way that God has worked out this plan of salvation, there's absolutely no place for human boasting. All people come to God in the same way, all races, all genders, all ages, all levels of respectability within society, we all come to God empty-handed. I'm sorry if you've met Christians who have seemed self-righteous before. I really am sorry if that's the impression that Christians have given, looking down on others going, I've worked my way before God, I think he's pretty happy with me, unlike the rest of you down there. I'm really sorry if you've experienced that. I'm sorry if I've come across in that way myself. I've got nothing to boast about. There's nothing that I offer God. My only boast is in my great and gracious and just God who has freely acquitted me. 
There is something so liberating about what we're hearing tonight. So liberating to be told by God that we are guilty. It means that we can stop the pretending. It means that we can drop the facade that projects onto the world. I'm perfect. I've got life all together. I can handle this. We can drop that because God's been honest with us. We can be honest with one another as well. Now, I don't know what burden of guilt you've carried into this room tonight. Perhaps it's been weighing you down for quite some time. I mean, there might be some of you for whom tonight's been the first time that you've heard of your guilt before God and it's been a bit of a shock. You will meet God as judge one day. You do need to hear what we've heard tonight. You do need to come to Jesus. But perhaps for many of us, we've known Jesus for some time. But we've been struggling to do away with guilt and shame. The guilt of sexual sin. And that clings close, doesn't it? The guilt of lying. And perhaps you're still living in the effects of one of those lies. The guilt of gossip or bullying and someone actually getting really severely hurt. The guilt of violence. Whatever your burden of guilt is as you come in tonight, I urge you, lay it on Jesus. He can take it. Let him take it. Let him take your guilt and you take his righteousness. We're going to sing a song in a moment to uh, finish up our service together. And in that song, there's a great line, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within. Such a great line because it recognizes that whenever we're reminded of guilt from the past, that's coming from another. It's not coming from God. God's dealt with our guilt. The verse goes on to express what God has done to deal with that guilt, but the words come a bit later in this book of Romans in chapter 8. Paul unpacks a bit more this truth of justification. We'll hear some more from Romans 6 on Sunday, but have a listen to how Paul concludes in Romans 8. Wonderful words of what Jesus has achieved for us. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation now exists for those who are in Christ Jesus. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He didn't even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Trust in Jesus and you are not guilty. Not guilty. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much that you have dealt with our guilt in its entirety. We come to you empty-handed, trusting that Jesus has taken the full penalty for what we deserve, trusting that all our guilt has been nailed to that cross and done away with for all eternity. We come trusting that now in your sight, we are sons and daughters, innocent, as eternally loved as you ever loved the Son. We can never repay you for that. Forgive us for our efforts to try. Forgive us for turning back to religion. Forgive us for trying to drown out our guilt. Forgive us for trying to intellectualize away our guilt. Help us to continue to trust. 
to lay all that guilt before you and let you take it. Father, thank you for this freedom that comes from knowing Jesus and knowing that we are justified. Amen.